From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Tovaleh Nachmani discusses Bahar B'chukotai. Tovaleh Nachmani is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Tovaleh Nachmani. In the last few months, many of us have witnessed friends and relatives who have lost their jobs or had to close their businesses, severely reducing their monthly income and losing their economic stability for the future. Unemployed and with a bleak economic forecast, people we know have experienced a blow to their self-esteem and a crippling of their ability to even imagine how and when they will regain their financial footing. What does this Torah portion, which brings closure to the book of Vayikra, Leviticus, offer to teach us about the global crisis we are currently facing? How do the seven-year Shemitah and the seven times seven-year Jubilee cycles challenge us to think differently about our own work week and ways to enhance the seventh day of rest on Shabbat. And what would you do if you had an all-expense-page sabbatical from your current responsibilities in life? That's a fun question. Our Torah portion, which is a pairing of two Torah portions, Behar and Bechukotai, brings closure in a very unexpected turnabout to the book of Vayikra, Leviticus. For 24 chapters of the book of Vayikra, up until Parashat Behal, the Jewish people have been taught about holiness, priestly rites and sacrifices, sin offerings to right our flawed relationship with God, and thanksgiving offerings to God as the source of our blessings in this world. How might we have expected the book of Vayikra to end? Probably with more of the same, with more holiness rituals. But not at all. Our Torah portion surprisingly climaxes with the revolutionary idea of reorganizing the entire social economy in the land of Israel once every seven years. Individuals who had become impoverished, who were experiencing angst about the most essential necessities like feeding and housing their families, would be able to get a new lease on life in the seventh year. Their accumulated debts would be erased and they would be able to enter any field and collect the foods of their choice to provide security for themselves and their family. In the Shemitah year, agricultural lands in Israel were to lie fallow, untended. Private land holdings would become open to everyone, and staples such as food shortage and perennial or recurring harvest were to be freely redistributed and accessible to all. What will become the real test of holiness of the people as they finish the book of Vayikra and leave Mount Sinai where all of the book of Vayikra takes place? So these concluding chapters in Vayikra and all of the later prophets who come to warn us of dire consequences for not sticking to our part of the covenant with God don't speak about sacrifices at all. The prophets tell us that since we are now a nation, like all the other nations, with a land and natural resources, In order to become a light unto the nations, we will need to demonstrate two things. First, our ability to trust in God enough to restrain ourselves from working the land during the seventh year, which is an extremely challenging task to to fulfill. And secondly, and most importantly, we will need to demonstrate what it means to live with compassion in a competitive society. Being an Am Kadosh, a holy people, will mean that one's personal financial burdens, whether they worked hard enough to support themselves or whether they did not, 
that person's financial ills will have to become the responsibility of their friends and neighbors. The parasha of Behar, which means at the mountain, concludes the, the long year of camping at the foot of Mount Sinai. It rolls out the laws of Shemitah, the sabbatical year. If you've heard the Hebrew term Shemitah before, you may not realize or you may not remember that the Hebrew word Shemitah means the year of releasing ownership of the land. What happens during that year? It sounds like this. Chapter 25 in Vayikra, Leviticus. When you come into the land which I will give you, the land will keep a Shabbat for Hashem. Six years you will sow your field, and six years you will prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year, the land will have a Shabbat Shabbaton, a ceasing from all activity. You will not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You, you may not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It will be a year of complete rest for the land. And if your brother becomes increasingly poor and his well-being fails while he is with you, you must strengthen him. The question we're being challenged to ask ourselves is, who owns this land anyway? One innovative answer is, we don't own the land. The land owns us. Dr. Bradley Artson, Dean of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, wrote about one of the delusions of our contemporary Western society, which is the odd notion of ownership. On the one hand, there's something quaint, he writes, about us mortal beings thinking we can buy and control plots of land, mountains, rivers, and beachfront lots, as if the land can be contained, defined, and constrained, subject to our will and accessible uniquely to us. And, on a deeper level, there is something truly monstrous, an absurd outburst of narcissistic ego in the claim of human beings that land is something we own. In the battle over who owns the, uh, who owns what and what owns who, the Torah proclaims right here at Sinai that the land of Israel must not be sold forever beyond reclaim in perpetuity. For the land is mine, capital M, says God, you are but strangers, sojourners, residing with me. The land remains on loan to us. It must remain redeemable at all times. As if the Torah is saying, Silly mortal, you who were born and destined to die, you do not own the land. You get to dwell on it. You get to live with it. You get to enjoy it and care for it for a spell. And then you will pass and be buried in the land. You will become part of the land and the land will continue without you. This seven-year structuring of time, as well as the seven-day Shabbat structuring of time, is one of the most compelling rejections of the pyramid-like culture of, the, of ancient Egypt, which was all about hierarchy, where the strong enslaved the weak and the rich exploited the poor. Shabbat and Shemitah and the Jubilee or Yovel years are the most striking practical expressions of our freedom, not only from Egypt, but from their ways of using and abusing human beings nearly 3,300 years ago. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes about this in his commentary to the Haggadah. He calls it an unprecedented innovation. We were given a threefold sabbatical structure of the seventh day, the seventh year, and the jubilee the year that marked the completion of seven septennial, 
which are seven-year cycles. One day in seven, Shabbat, all hierarchies of wealth and power were suspended. No one could be forced to work, not employees, nor slaves, or even domestic animals. In the seventh year, Shemitah, debts were remitted and slaves were sent free. And in the Jubilee year, after the 49th year, when the shofar was sounded on Yom Kippur, proclaiming liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants, all ancestral land was returned to its original owners. Shemitah continues to be a very real part of the religious, agricultural, and economic consciousness in Israel today, and one that is simultaneously very exciting to reclaim in various ways, albeit limited, and also very challenging. Shemitah, the seventh year of the seven-year agricultural cycle mandated by the Torah for the land of Israel, is once again observed with many legal variations in Jewish life in Israel. Next year, on Rosh Hashanah 2021, September, we'll begin our next Shemitah year. So Shemitah we still have some semblance of, but today we are not able to practice the socially equalizing rules of Shemitah and Yovel when all debts are erased and every person was able to return to a parcel of land they could at least temporarily call theirs. As Yaakov Azriel, the modern Israeli poet, writes in an exquisite poem, in the attached source sheet, he writes, We have lost the keys that open the gates of true freedom. His poem begins like this, Where is the key that you, God, had given me, which could unlock the prison gate and open all its doors to liberate deaf prisoners who wait impatiently to hear the orchestra of liberty? They wait inside, not knowing that they wait in vain, not knowing that it is too late, not knowing that I cannot find the key. Why can we not find the key? Because of the long exile from our land, we do not know when the Jubilee year falls. Therefore, we are not able to perform the acts of Yovel, liberty for all people in the land. But what do we have What we have in the idea of Shemitah and Yovel on a national scale, we can experience in Shabbat on a communal, family, or even individual scale. How is Shemitah like Shabbat? Because that's what we have today in our current realities. For six days a week, we live in a capitalistic and competitive reality. The seventh day is for sharing some of our hard-earned acquisitions like food and drink with others. Shabbat involves relinquishing our temptation to make more progress, more money, or to acquire more possessions in order to achieve something that will make all of those things more meaningful. Our tradition tells us that Shabbat is about spending more time and focus not on what we want in the material realm and not even on what we need. Shabbat is about slowing down enough to take stock of who and what we have, and to actually feel gratitude for what we have and who we have. The more we notice all we have, the happier we are, and the happier we are to share. And the contrary is true as well. The more we share, the more we often realize how much we actually have to share. In several places, the Talmud mentions that we are not supposed to pray 
for our individual needs on Shabbat. Why is that? So one approach, based on a single verse attributed to the prophet Isaiah, which might be familiar to you because we say it in the Shabbat morning Kiddush, blessing over wine, um, sounds like this. If you refrain from trampling this Shabbat, from pursuing your material affairs on, affairs on my holy day, if you call the Shabbat delight, and if you call the Lord's holy day honored, and if you honor it and do not engage in your routine commercial affairs or routines, then you will be able to rejoice in God. In other words, Shabbat offers us a day to live in the realm of time, where, as Abraham Joshua Heschel says, the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue other people, but to live in accord. The Shabbat offers us a break. It offers us a break from our busy material routines to open up space for the spiritual and the interpersonal, if we make it happen. There's a second opinion why we don't pray for personal requests on Shabbat, because praying for personal needs causes us to focus on what we lack and what is troubling to us. According to Rambam in Hilchot Shabbat, Shabbat is a day of joy, a day to be, an island in time. It's a precious opportunity to not only count my blessings, but also to share them and recount them with others. As with most halachot, there is an exception to the rule, as well, of not making personal requests on Shabbat, because just as saving lives supersedes Shabbat, one is permitted to pray for healing when faced by an immediate life-threatening emergency. I'm sure many people have used this exception to the rule during the current health crisis. And this exception also includes praying, for example, for a woman who's giving birth. So we learn from this that on Shabbat we're presented with a challenge to be present with our blessings in the here and now, and to share them with a full heart with others. Until now, we've learned teachings from Behar, chapter 25 of Aikra. The last two chapters of Aikra is a portion called Bechukotai, and it's also called the portion of rebuke. The last two chapters of Aikra reiterate our need to stay committed to the covenant at Sinai. If we remain committed as a nation when we enter the land, we will experience blessings in all areas of our life, says the Torah. Michael Hatton, in his transformational book, Passages, describes this as blessings of our physical health and sustenance, our emotional well-being and stability, our spiritual satisfaction and fulfillment, and every other possible blessing that inspires our earthly existence with worth and meaning. These are all presented as the natural outcome of serving God in sincerity. And on the other hand, sickness and poverty, anxiety and fear, alienation and depression, and all the other myriad demons that haunt humanity and crush it with their oppressiveness are even more prominently highlighted as the inevitable consequences of abandoning God and abrogating His commands. So whether we understand this literally or metaphorically, as Michael Hatton continues to lay out in his articulate teaching of the different, a difference of approach and how to understand these blessings and curses, one thing is clear, that entering the land as a people means we hereby become fully responsible for each other, for better or for worse. We may suffer because of the sins of others, but we may also benefit because of merit. I want to offer another way to think about blessings and curses. Since we are now a people with a national body and a national fate, we may experience the blessings and curses as being on the same spectrum. 
If we think about a straight line or a rope, blessings will be at one end and curses at the other. But if we bring the ends together into a circle, we can see blessings and curses as part and parcel of the same reality. One person's suffering, as sad and painful as it may be, like the person who's been defeated, degraded, and demoralized with poverty, gives the community the possibility of sharing their many and varied blessings. Blessings of physical strength, emotional well-being, spiritual gifts, and material wealth. Because people tend to come together most when there's disaster. The curse of disaster actually hastens the blessing of helping hands. The curses of Bechukotai are read in some synagogues with a very low, quiet voice. And I will end by offering three reasons. First, because perhaps because it's unpleasant to hear about frightening events that could befall the Jewish people. Second, because when we speak quietly, people increase their intention. They increase their attention. They may even lean forward to catch our every word. The consequences are important for us all to know. So no one should say, hey, wait a minute, I didn't know there were collective consequences for my behavior. Third, because some of the people in any congregation will have inevitably experienced or be experiencing one of those sufferings that we read about in the curses, and we do not want to arouse suspicion in anyone's heart that maybe the person who's suffering did something to bring the suffering upon themselves, their self. Like the so-called friends say to the character of Job in the Tanakh, if you have suffered a catastrophe, you must have done something to deserve it. God forbid. The book of Job rings true then as it does today with its concluding divine question, where were you when I created the world? In other words, don't think you will ever understand the divine ways in justice and compassion or blessings and curses. We as a community are on call at all times, to support with compassion any person who falls into a vulnerable position of need. Yes, even as we maintain our healthy, healthy competitive six-day-a-week, six-years-at-a-time structures in time. I invite you to, to ask yourselves the questions on the source sheet for reflection about Shabbat, about Shemitah, and about an experience of pain or suffering when you, and your, when you and your community or others came together to give of yourselves and how it turned out to bring about unprecedented blessing for you all because of the opportunity that was opened up as a result of the suffering of your fellow person. May our intensified experiences of showing compassion in word and deed on Shabbat, during Shemitah, and during any tragedy, Lahavdil have a long-term effect upon us, to live sensitized by them long after we return to life's competitive routine. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Tovalea. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.